Welcome to episode 108 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's April 6th, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Russian flu of the late 19th century. Our guest today is Thomas Ewing, who is the Associate Dean for Graduate Studies and Research and Professor of History at Virginia Tech University. Tom is the author of several books on Russian, European, and world history, and his most recent book is a co-edited volume entitled Viral Networks, Connecting Digital Humanities and Medical History, which was published in 2018. Tom has worked at the intersection of history of information, data, history of medicine, and Russian and Soviet history. As part of his recent project, he has published several articles on the Russian flu, on digital humanities, and how to use digital humanities in medical history research. And I think both or all these topics will serve as the core of our conversation today. So welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This particular episode is going to follow several other episodes that we've had on the far better known Spanish flu, which I think, Merle, we've covered almost since the beginning of this podcast, which was incidentally a bit after the great rediscovery of the Spanish flu at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Now, if I remember correctly, Merle, none of our guests mentioned the Russian flu in any context other than Guy Biner, I think. I mean, I think he mentioned it here, but I may have seen it elsewhere during my binge of Guy Biner talks a while ago. But anyway, Guy suggested that the Russian flu was the pandemic to which people referred to at the time of the Spanish pandemic in the early 20th century, which is quite close to the way in which we understood COVID in light of the Spanish flu. So I'm looking forward to discussing with Tom both what the Russian flu is and also how its story connects to the Spanish flu and perhaps also why it is not very well known these days. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to frame this episode, Lee. And I remember I read a couple of things early on, some point in the hazy memory of COVID on the Russian flu, and was always intrigued by it. And there's some great newspaper images, if I recall as well, from it that I'd seen. And I think that's a really nice way to explore this, both as, if you recall, our first goal of this podcast, Lee, when we were only going to do about 10 or 20 episodes, is we were going to do one episode on every pandemic that was infamous, really. And that's obviously gone out the window a long time ago, but this is certainly one that we have not covered. So I'm very much looking forward to that, both for ourselves and especially for our listeners. And the other thing, as I'll say, Lee, is this is also very much a natural follow-up episode to the one from a little while ago with Jeff Resnick from the National Library of Medicine, in the sense of both because we're talking about a pandemic from the late 19th or early 20th century, but also because I think this should nicely touch upon what you love to call Leah's meta issues, which is to say people studying pandemics during pandemics, right? And how that shapes both your studying and kind of the ways in which you approach this, right? And I think Tom has done a lot of really nice work, both in terms of digital methods and working with students and writing for public audiences in terms of these approaches during the COVID pandemic. But before we get there, Lee, how are you? Are you on Passover break? Is everything shut down there? Yeah, so we are on a two-week Passover break. We've celebrated Passover yesterday. It is extremely common to celebrate Passover here, I think, as opposed to probably where you are, Admiral, but I'm sure we're going to hear about that a bit later. We did have massive traffic jams over here. Now, I think that compared to the United States, the closest equivalent of the cultural value of Passover as like a holiday is probably something like Thanksgiving, right? So everyone goes to visit their families and have like this ritual feast on Passover evening. And as I spoke to family, friends, and so on, I thought it was very surprising that nobody in any context I've seen or heard has actually discussed COVID and the fact that only three years ago, this entirely like very important cultural holiday was basically canceled because of COVID. So we all had to like celebrate this in our homes. Did no one make the obvious comparison that I've been thinking about in the last few weeks in the run-up to Passover, which is the 10 plagues, right? Being called the 10 plagues, which has an etymology itself. And that being the key to, as it were, literally the Passover holiday, and that we just live through, one could argue, it, one of those plagues. No one spoke about it at all. I mean, I don't think anyone actually said COVID throughout this holiday. I mean, at least in my family, my like circles, maybe other people have discussed this entire time. I'm pretty sure they haven't, but maybe, who knows? I mean, on the other side, the domestic political situation here is 
continues to be tense. And I think that did very clearly dominate holiday conversations among my family, at least. But what about you, Merle? So how has your first Passover in Oklahoma been? Yeah, so I guess I'll neatly frame my response exactly how you did, which is one comment about Passover and then one about COVID. In terms of Passover, this is the first time I think my kids are really old enough to kind of get what's happening and to understand that it's slightly different. And there's good and bad to this. The good is they're really proud of this holiday and that no one else around them is celebrating it or even be honest, probably realistically even knows anything about it, except that, you know, maybe the Good Friday Passover connection kind of thing. So they're really proud of it. And my son especially really likes that it's eight days. I know it's seven for you, but it's eight for us because eight is more than one. And so most of the other holidays that people celebrate, right? He got really into the fact that Hanukkah was eight days and Christmas was only one. And thus this was a better holiday, which, you know, he's a young kid and that is something that kids, you know, pick up on. They like more, I guess you could say. But the downside to this I'll see is, you know, my kids basically only eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch, right? If you make them anything else, they kind of have a meltdown. And since they're also old enough, this was the first year we made them a kosher for Passover lunch. So I'll be curious what they make of that. Do they have any days off because of Passover or have they had any days off? No. Nowhere, as far as I'm aware, in the United States gives days off for Passover, unless you are at a, you know, religious Jewish school. I mean, even in New York, where I grew up, you know, you would get off for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, but Passover, as far as I'm aware, no one ever had off. I'll just say that as a kid, we used to have like three weeks off in the middle of the year, which was, I guess, pretty horrible for our parents. I think now it's a bit less. It's probably like two weeks, maybe two and a half, but it's still is very disruptive, I would say. I think you're now learning the kids loving the week off spring break and parents like inwardly groaning going, oh God, what am I going to do now for this week? The other thing I'll say real quick is that something I've noticed over the last month or two is any of the faculty, at least in my department, or almost all the faculty, I guess I should say, who had previously continued to mask when they were teaching or in the hallways, whether it's because they were being safer or they had pre-existing conditions, have basically dropped that entirely. Right. So the people who were continuing in the fall, and I would say about half of the spring semester, have now entirely ceased to do so. And I've talked to a couple about why that is, but that seems to be an interesting new development, as it were. But in any case, Tom, where are you? I assume you're in Virginia. I'm in Virginia. Yeah, I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia. And what's happening around you? Well, I would say things are quieting down on campus. We do not get a holiday for Passover or over the Easter weekend. But I think a lot of students take it as an informal holiday. And so I taught yesterday, I don't teach today or tomorrow, and I'm looking out the window from my campus office and it appears to be less traffic out there of students. So my guess is they're heading out. We had spring break a couple weeks ago. So most of our students are in state, you know, so they're within a few hours of here. So I think this is a pretty common weekend to disappear. We're also getting whatever bad weather hit the Midwest a day or so ago is coming our direction. So that'll be part of our reality for a few days. Hopefully no tornadoes, or is that a thing that does happen? We're in the mountains, so it rarely happens here. I think our climate change issue is going to be flooding. This is an area where because of both the mountains and also the pretty steep topography, you can get flash floods pretty quickly, you know, along creeks that previously flooded a little bit, but now we're doing so a lot more. So I think that's in this region, probably the most kind of visible evidence of climate change in the way that they're saying, you know, these more frequent and more destructive tornadoes that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks in the U.S. are evidence of that also. And maybe to continue the point that Merle and I had earlier, how prevalent is COVID in the public sphere or maybe like among people you meet and interact with in any way, right? I mean, do you still see COVID masks anywhere, even for sale at shops, right? Do you still see signs that kind of remind you that there was like a massive pandemic here not that long ago, actually? Or is everyone just kind of like trying to forget it? So there's still signs up, but they're starting to get a little tattered. (laughs) Like they've been up a year or two now. I would say among the students, I almost never see masks in class or in the library, which is where I happen to be teaching, or in other places. And it's pretty infrequent among 
faculty, except I think as Merle was saying, you know, if you have faculty in particular circumstance who make the decision to do so, and that's been the case for me, you know, I continue to wear a mask while I teach. It's interesting, I was at a meeting on Friday that brought together a lot of faculty who do research on health, and there were more masks among that group than I normally see, you know, and I kind of take that seriously. <laughs> the positivity rate is way down in this area, but I still, you know, hear about so-and-so sick home with COVID, got COVID, you know, other things. And so it's happening just enough to remind me that it's still out there. I mean, these are people I don't think were terribly sick, but it's still going on, you know, and I think the university has pretty much given up, you know, in terms of, you know, any kind of health measures. We had a, a vaccine mandate that went into effect in the spring of 2021 and, you know, it was required for students and all employees. And that lasted until January of 2022 when our newly elected governor came in and said there would be no more mandates. <laughs> and I think the decision was since we were already at 95, 98% vaccinated, you know, they just kind of surrendered and said, okay. <laughs> you know, so I think that there's been a kind of gradual rolling back. And I think it was that spring that they lifted the mask mandate and inside public spaces. So it's been a while. Okay. Maybe we can shift now to the discussion. And I think many, most, probably all of our listeners at this point know the Spanish influenza, right? Of 1918 to 1919, 1920, 1921. But you work on the Russian influenza. So can you maybe first tell us what is the Russian influenza and when was it? The starting date is pretty easy. It was late fall of 1889, November of 1889. There were reports of widespread illness in St. Petersburg, the capital city of Russia at the time. And those were picked up and discussed in St. Petersburg, first by physicians and then in the newspapers and health authorities. And then those discussions were reported by newspapers, first in England and other places in Europe and then in the United States. And the name Russian influenza was associated with that outbreak within a couple of weeks. So by early December 1889, and then it quickly spread. It spreads across Eastern Europe, Central Europe. Most of the reports are for major cities. So Warsaw, Berlin, Vienna, Paris, London, but also other places. And then about the third week of December, it reaches the United States. And then it spreads really around the rest of the world, especially in early 1890. So by February, March, you have reports across Latin America, across Asia, Africa. So it becomes a global pandemic in about, you know, three or four months, November to February. It's harder to pick an end date. There's kind of an initial surge, spikes in the number of cases, and in most places, spikes in the number of deaths. But then it pretty quickly diminishes after that. But then there are more waves. There's a wave in the Northern Hemisphere in, again, late 1890, early 1891, and then again, early 1892. So I think, you know, in keeping with the chronology of the Spanish influenza, you know, you can talk about the influenza epidemic from 1889 to 1892, you know, so really kind of two or three years. If we want to compare this to the Spanish flu, here we have a case of the Russian flu actually starting in Russia. Were there any other names that the pandemic was given or, or was thought about, maybe how did Russians think about this at the time? And was the name seen as some kind of negative publicity for Russia at the time? Or was that not even something that people thought about? So it's also called, you know, the influenza epidemic. A pretty common term at the time was actually grip or la grip. So those terms were used pretty interchangeably, at least in the English language, newspapers and medical journals. Yes, countries called it by different names. In fact, there's a series of articles in late 1889 that kind of run through the list. You know, the Russians called it the Chinese influenza, the Italians called it the French influenza. You know, so they're all attributing it to some other country or some other region. I think the Russian influenza kind of sticks because it's a place of origin. And so it's easy to keep referring to it that way. And so you see these discussions among physicians and newspapers in the United States, you know, is this the Russian grip? Is this the Russian influenza or is it just seasonal influenza? So they kind of use that term to distinguish it. They talk about the European visitor, you know, those kinds of terms. I was surprised that it was not associated that frequently with kind of stereotypes of Russia. There were a couple of articles that did that. There was one in the Times of London 
that said, you know, Russia has this disease and it has a high death rate because sanitary conditions are so terrible in Russia, you know, and then they provided some evidence. Well, once the disease reaches Western Europe and then England, and they have high cases and high death rates, they can't really make that argument anymore. What's more common is to report on the disease as something that affects the rich and the poor, the nobility and the commoners, the royal families of Europe. And so the fact that the Russian Tsar, Alexander III, got the disease kind of got a lot of attention, you know, and then other royal families get it too. And so the perceptions of Russia are almost more associated with the emperor, his family, the nobility, than they are necessarily with a perception of Russia, you know, in a particular cultural sense. And I guess one other kind of framing question, do we know how and why it disappears? Or is it just kind of one of these things that, you know, no one hears from again? Well, I think it kind of dissipates into more seasonal kinds of influenza outbreaks. What's shocking about the early stages is how quickly the number of cases increases. And then that's followed by a, a very high number of deaths. And in the subsequent waves, it's not nearly that intense. But there are moments when they're talking about, you know, higher than normal cases, higher than normal deaths, but it doesn't last very long. I don't know exactly when it kind of comes to an end, but there's definitely getting less attention. And one of the issues, you mentioned the Spanish influenza, is there's actually a pretty long break between epidemics between 1889, 1892, and 1918, 1919. You know, and so people kind of forget about it because they go that long without, you know, a major influenza epidemic. If we continue this comparison, because I do think it is interesting enough, are there any interesting stories or anecdotes about the beginning of the Russian flu like there is for the Spanish flu, right? I mean, this entire discussion of where exactly the Spanish flu began or how is it related to World War One at the same time and coming from the trenches, it's coming from this like, Kansas base in the United States. Does this exist at all? Or, I mean, are people concerned about the starting context? There's one theory <laughs> that the flu started in the spring of 1889 in Bukhara, which is now in Uzbekistan at the time in Central Asia. And this was part of the discussion at the time. It then got reinforced about a year into the pandemic when a British author, Parsons, published a study of the influenza epidemic, and he had identified Bukhara as one of the origin points. And then just in the last two or three years, since there's been discussion about the Russian flu as maybe a coronavirus, that starting point has kind of come back. It was in the New York Times. It was in a couple of Gali articles. And that prompted me to go back and look for the evidence. And it's interesting because all of the evidence for the origin in Bukhara comes from a single doctor who was actually a German doctor on assignment in the Russian Empire who treated patients in Bukhara with respiratory diseases. And at the time, he thought maybe it was typhus, maybe it was malaria, but that seemed like a lot of cases, you know, an unusually high number of symptoms. And then four or five months later, when he was in St. Petersburg and treating patients, he said these were the same symptoms. And so it's the same disease. So the epidemic must have begun four or five months ago in Bukhara. And he published those in a couple of journals. And then it kind of went away until it got revived by Parsons and his study. And then now has been brought back again, I don't think it's correct. You know, I think it's possibly one location, but there were reports of other locations, you know, where there were kind of outbreaks of unusual respiratory diseases. And so to me, it's similar to the debate on the Spanish flu. You know, you can pick a point, you know, with this doctor traveling around southeastern Kansas, you know, and say that's where the disease began in the spring of 1918, and then it went to Europe, and then it came back. But I don't think that's how, you know, respiratory viruses and influenza outbreaks really work. You know, more commonly, there are a number of different possible starting points, and some get attention for certain reasons, but not necessarily because they are the starting point. It does tie in with the question you asked earlier, which is a perception that's very strong in Russia at the time, as well as in Europe, which is, you know, Central Asian populations as somehow backward, as dirty you know, is needing more sanitary attention. And that's certainly part of the story that the German doctor, Hayfelder, told, as well as Parsons and others. And there was a British doctor who did a pretty systematic review of the Russian publications. You know, and he made a really good point, which is with influenza epidemics, 
you know, nobody's watching for the first case. It's not like cholera or something else where you can have a kind of sanitary guard and say, you know, as soon as we see the first case, here's what we do. They appear, you know, and you you can't really track them that effectively. Part of the reason I'm looking at this now is obviously the debate on the origins of COVID. You know, was this a lab leak? Was this in the market in, in Wuhan? You know, we obviously have much better evidence now, you know, even with the obstruction by the Chinese government, you know, where we can say it was definitely in the city. That's the first place we can even, you know, pin down the neighborhood. We're still trying to find the you know, immediate step before that, and we may never be able to find it, we're never going to have that level of certainty with either the Russian flu or the Spanish flu, you know, so it's going to be the same process of saying, how many places were there noticeable increases in sickness that we could say, you know, probably were connected to what is clearly the starting point in the case of the Spanish flu in the summer of 1918 across Western Europe, or in November of 1889 in St. Petersburg, where there were, without question, many, many more cases of people being sick and then, you know, an increase in the death rate. So I guess that brings us to kind of a question that I'm curious about, which is, you know, we frame the Spanish flu largely because of Alfred Crosby's book as the forgotten pandemic, when certainly before COVID, it was hardly forgotten, if not completely in, you know, everyone's mind. And certainly once COVID happened, right, everyone was talking about it. But it seems to me that the Russian flu is much more of this, you know, forgotten category, right? Relative lack of interest. I'm going to assume that there was no big, you know, centenary anniversary of it that happened with the flurry of books. Maybe there was. And so maybe you can tell us about that and why even that has disappeared from, for lack of a better term, much of the public discussions of it. I was not aware of any centenary celebration in, in 1989, although I was in graduate school at the time and had other preoccupations. 1989 was a pivotal year for other reasons. The Spanish flu had a much higher mortality. You know, many, many times more people died. Again, the numbers are a little bit tricky, but, you know, 50 to 100 million deaths globally in the United States, you know, 600,000, you know, significantly more than are associated with the Russian flu by any measure. And so it makes sense, you know, that it would get that attention. I think the Spanish flu history is very much tied up with World War One, And in fact, Crosby's approach is to really think about it in the military context. You know, some of the more recent studies, John Barry and the Nancy Bristow's, have, I think, in some ways moved away from the focus in the military in the way that Crosby did. But, you know, certainly there was so much more happening in 1918 that the Spanish flu kind of becomes part of that story. And, you know, the fact that more people died from disease in the Spanish flu than died in the war is an important point of comparison to bring up. And so there are various reasons why the Russian influenza doesn't get that same level of attention. I actually got interested in the, both first the Spanish flu and then the Russian flu, partly because I was interested in technologies of communication and how information was spreading through telegraph cables and then newspapers, you know, and how what was being reported was, you know, kind of recirculating information. It was bringing information from further away. It was also connecting down to regional and especially local news sources. And, you know, what's interesting in that connection with the Russian flu is this is the first time because of the global cable network that information can travel faster than people. You know, if you think about all of human history up to that point, other than, you know, short distances with, you know, ships and semaphore flags or something like that, you could only communicate as fast as a person could travel. But once you have the cables, you know, then you've got news appearing literally the next day from a very distant location, you know. And so there are stories in British newspapers and American newspapers about disease outbreaks in Europe the next day you know, because that's how fast the information travels. And what this means is that you can then anticipate the coming of a disease. You can figure out how quickly it's moving, you know, from different places and then look for it and then expect it to come. And so to me, and again, when I started this 10, more than 10 years ago, we were asking the same questions about Facebook or Twitter. You know, how do those technologies change how quickly not only we get information, but how we share information? As opposed to going back to 1989, you know, when you had live television feed, but it was all controlled by networks, you know, and kind of governed what we had access to. So in that sense, the Russian influenza is perhaps more interesting than the Spanish flu because it really was brand new. 
And you have physicians and public health experts and others saying essentially that fact, you know, <laughs> we have patients coming to us who describe symptoms that they have because they read about them in the newspapers. You know, they say, I've been reading about the Russian flu. It says if you have, you know, congestion, a headache, back pains, you have the Russian flu. That's what I have. Treat me. And they're kind of complaining about it. So to me, you know, getting interested in this topic was partly about this question about kind of information flow and information networks. What we discovered, of course, with COVID is how incredibly important those are, you know, in the ways in particular that misinformation has been spread so quickly through social networks, you know, beyond not only the control of health authorities, but in many ways in opposition to them in ways that really undermined their effectiveness. So, you know, I think the Russian influenza is a different historical period than the Spanish flu, not only obviously 30 years earlier, but in terms of the context. But I think it's relevant and important for other reasons, even though the Spanish flu, again, in terms of the scale of the impact is much greater. Okay, so what happened after the Russian flu? I mean, how does it end? And whether at the time or later on, have commentators, researchers associated any longer term impacts to the pandemic? I'm thinking here about anything from economic to social or cultural effects. I mean, this is a question we're asking partially because of our own interest in pre-modern pandemics, where these questions seem to be more important than in research on modern pandemics. I don't know of any economic impact that I've seen. And there wasn't anything in terms of, uh, you know, kind of diplomatic or political impact. Public health response was different in 1889, 1890 than it was in 1918, 1919. You know, one of the things that happens in those intervening 30 years in the United States, which I'm more aware of, is the public health system gets much stronger and much more widespread and in some probably more effective, although they were pretty ineffective in the fall of 1918. Part of this comes from the military. You know, the U.S. military gets very involved in disease control and prevention because of, you know, interventions in Central America and the Caribbean and the Pacific. And so, you know, this really changes kind of how public health authorities think about infectious diseases. They're much more willing to kind of recognize them and treat them. There had been also a lot of research on tuberculosis during these decades and in the 19th century, early 20th century. And so more awareness of the transmission of disease, infection, contagion, those kinds of things. So in the Russian flu, they were really pretty helpless about what to do. There's some warning of, you know, avoiding crowds. There's, you know, recommendations to keep yourself warm, to eat well, to kind of do those basic things. But there was no discussion of masking. There were no efforts to, you know, encourage social distancing, reduce crowding by, say, changing the hours of factories or streetcars or other kinds of things. So even those sort of basic public health steps that were taken in 1918 really didn't appear in 1889. There is a lot of research on, again, the etiology of the disease. You know, how is it transmitted? How does it differ from other respiratory diseases? But they don't discover the virus until the 1930s, you know, so they're still thinking in terms of a microbe or bacterium or something else. You see a little bit of discussion about whether this is, you know, something atmospheric. Is this a germ that's in the soil or in smoke or in the environment that somehow got stirred up? But mostly they're aware that this is transmitted from person to person, you know, so they're attentive to that. And this is happening right at the time or just after the beginning, I guess, of the bacteriological revolution. Yes. What is your sense of how are scholars, researchers reacting to this? Are, are they optimistic that, oh, we're going to solve this problem and then kind of forget about it because there are bigger fish to fry, for lack of a better term? Or Yeah, I mean, they... a lot of the scientists who are part of the bacteriological revolution and are studying germs and microbes kind of shift and start looking at influenza at this time. You know, again, much as we saw with COVID, you know, you suddenly drop what you're doing and study that disease. And their claims, I think, are pretty similar. They're still trying to find the right microbe and distinguish it from what causes other diseases, but they don't necessarily follow through on that. You know, a lot of the attention goes back again to tuberculosis. It goes to cholera. It goes to the plague, you know, when there's another outbreak in the 1890s. You know, so influenza kind of, it doesn't really vanish, but it certainly moves out of a kind of priority 
again until 1918 when there's this attention to it again there's always a tension and, and again you see this early in 1918 about whether this is just seasonal influenza and some of the earliest recommendations at least on the u.s side in the summer of 1918 is to say this is not dangerous this is early you know for the flu to come to the united states but don't worry you know you might be sick for a couple of days but you're going to be fine and they really underestimated in 1918 how severe the disease just as they did in the fall of 1889 you know again their recommendations lots of people are getting sick they don't feel very well but again and again, you see statements from physicians saying this is not a deadly disease. You know, there's no danger from this until the death rates start to go up. And then they say, oh, <laughs> this is dangerous. Most of the deaths in this period, as in 1918, are actually caused by pneumonia. You know, fewer are attributed directly to influenza, more are attributed to pneumonia as the primary cause. Influenza is the secondary cause of what's, you know, creates that danger. One other connection and this is something I wrote about early in the summer, I guess, of 2020, is this question of kind of learning historical lessons. <laughs> and when the Spanish flu reached the United States, physicians looked back to 1889, 1890. You know, some of them were alive. They remembered that, you know, it was 30 years earlier. Some were even practicing, although they were, you know, pretty old. And they took two contrasting lessons. You know, I think the better lesson was, you know, this was a serious outbreak. We had a lot of cases. We had a lot of deaths. We didn't know what to do. We were pretty helpless. And we don't want to repeat that. You know, we should be more prepared. The other lesson was the wrong one. It was to say, you know, in 1889, this disease came to the United States. We were all worried about it. A lot of people got sick not that many died. It's not that serious. And so we shouldn't be that worried about this new disease outbreak. And of course, that latter view was wrong. You know, what happened in the 1918 was so much more deadly than they expected. And I think you could argue that, you know, had public health experts been ready for a more serious outbreak, maybe they would have responded differently than they did, and maybe would have saved some lives. And so the piece I wrote in the summer of 2020 was, you know, there are kind of three historical moments, the moment we were living in of COVID, the 1918 moment, the 1889 moment. And the argument I was making is in, you know, in 2020, let's not make the same mistake again and say, we've had previous outbreaks. We had an H1N1 outbreak in 2009. We had SARS early in the 2000s, at least in the United States. None of those were very deadly. But that was clearly the wrong lesson to take for COVID. I mean, I had no idea how bad COVID was going to be. Absolutely no idea in the United States. You know, but even at the time, you could tell that there was something going on that was not normal <laughs> and extraordinary measures had to be taken. So can I ask one last question about the pandemic itself before we turn to, you know, more meta ways that we can think about it, which is kind of you've been hinting that the death rate is lower than 1918. And one thing that's pretty clear to me, both because I study pre-modern pandemics when the numbers are just basically non-existent, made up, or such a mess that they might as well be made up, but having looked at, you know, 1918 influenza data or COVID data or whatever you want to say, right, all those numbers are at best very, very difficult, even though they're often presented as much more concrete. So how do you make, create you know, find whatever you want to talk about data from the Russian flu. And then as a follow-up, is this data just as problematic? And maybe that's just the case that we can only ever speak in generalities. Yeah. So the Russian flu happens at what the public health officials at the time were calling the golden age of statistics. <laughs> you know, they were realizing that statistics were an important public health tool. If you could measure changes, if you could measure the demographics of a population, if you could differentiate among diseases, you know, those were important instruments to help guide policy and change practices. And so they were very interested in counting, but they weren't doing it consistently or thoroughly. So there's an odd serendipity of timing, which is the United States has decennial censuses. So there was an 1890 census. The census year at the time was not the calendar year. The census year began June 1st, 1889 and ended May 31st, 1890, which meant the census year was included the worst months of the pandemic. So December 1889 to February, March of 1890. 
which I thought was great. I thought this is perfect. Like they're counting deaths, right? You know, in this period of time, I'm interested in. And in the vital statistics of the 1890 census, which is, I think, 1,200 pages long, there are only two tables that list la grip as a cause of death. And it's la grip listed alphabetically. So it's under L, not under I for influenza, not under G for grip, but L for la. And they count 13,000 deaths, which is way too low, right? It doesn't make any sense for an epidemic that's, you know, causing that much mayhem. Most of the deaths are pneumonia. You know, so they count pneumonia deaths, and then you can go through. And if you combine those together, which is how the PNI deaths, pneumonia and influenza deaths, is how the Center for Disease Control and Prevention counts influenza deaths now, you know, then you get a pretty good sense of what happened in that year. And there are states that have kind of low la grip deaths, but higher pneumonia deaths, and others that have higher la grip deaths and lower pneumonia deaths, and you kind of evens out. The problem is there are no other years. The U.S. Census doesn't start doing annual vital statistics until, I think, 1903 or 1904. So there's no way to look at the years before. There's no way to look at the years after. You have to go back to 1880 or all the way up to 1900 to make any kind of year-to-year comparison. And so I think in terms of your question, you know, there are a lot more numbers, but those numbers themselves are limited and inconsistent, you know, both in terms of how the cause of death is labeled, but also who's being counted and where they're being counted. So what I started doing was looking at state reports, because there are states that are much more detailed in what they're looking at, including, you know, county level or township or whatever the equivalent is, cities, but also by cause of death and by month. And so I published a piece on the Russian flu in Connecticut and another piece on Russian flu in Indiana because I had really good records for those two states. You know, it could really see how much the early part of 1890, as well as the early months of 1891, and particularly 1892, there's actually more deaths in 1892, you know, could be associated with this epidemic over those three years. So in that sense, I think there are situations where you could point to particular localities and say, yeah, we have a pretty good idea of the impact of this pandemic at this level and how what happened in those years was measurably different than the normal trajectories of the 1880s or what happens later in the 1890s. And what I'm doing now with some help of some students is looking at similar statistics for other parts of the world. There's been some work done on England and in some European countries. I'm doing work on Russia because they actually published really detailed statistical tables for this period of time. They're hard to get, but they are out there, you know, because, and I'm sure as an early modern historian, you can appreciate this, you know, a lot of the numbers are themselves qualitative, you know, in what they're saying, their projections, their perceptions, you know, there may be numbers, but often there are terms that are used that suggest a perception of what's normal and what's high and what's low and so on. I mean, to go back to the example from Bukhara, you know, this doctor, Heifelder, distinguished between cases and deaths among Europeans, which for him meant Russians, Germans, whatever, British, you know, everyone, and what he would call the native population. So the Uzbeks and others from the region. And so anytime, you know, particularly in the late 19th century that you're talking about medical statistics, you have to be very aware of the kind of cultural frame where particularly in European colonies, you've got either European doctors or European trained, you know, indigenous local doctors who are making arguments about who's healthy, who's sick, how they're explaining those deaths. So it's really important to think about how those perspectives shape what we think of as hard numbers. So listening to what you're saying, Tom, I mean, it seems that there are a lot of gaps, like a lot of these like blind spots in our knowledge. Which, I mean, is okay, right? I mean, that's what we live in with the pre-modern history as well. If I understand correctly, the general tendency in studies of the Russian flu is not to interpolate, not to try to like use the places for which we do have information to kind of like try to say like a bigger story about the Russian flu in general. So stories about the Russian flu, do they tend to be more case studies, small scale, let's say state level, local level, country level, maybe, but not global? Yeah, I mean, there is no global history of this influenza, actually what I'm trying to write, although very slowly. You know, some of the studies, like the one I mentioned from Parsons, aspire to be global. You know, they talk about the whole world, 
but it's strikingly inconsistent. There would be page after page of detail about England or Wales or France. And then there might be, you know, a page about the United States or about certain countries. And then there might be two paragraphs about China or one section with three paragraphs about all of Latin America. They just didn't know and they didn't have access and it didn't bother them that they didn't know. And the reports on Africa will be only, you know, coastal cities that had European populations in them. And that is some part of something else I'm looking at now is, you know, reports on China came almost entirely from, again, coastal cities that had European physicians, European military, and especially missionaries often running hospitals. And so, yeah, they were paying attention to health and reporting on it. But again, their cultural perceptions very much shaped kind of how they reported on the disease, who mattered, who was sick, who was dying, and how many. You know, and I think there's been more of an effort with the Spanish flu to correct that. But it's still striking where we have really detailed case studies of the 1918 flu and where the case studies are still very general just because the information is not available. You know, and I think that tends to reinforce certain perceptions about the disease. I mean, we're much more aware of kind of the impact of the Spanish flu on Western Europe, on England, on Australia, because there's good English language sources on that. And it's been looked at very carefully on the United States. And some historians have done very good studies of India, of Sub-Saharan Africa, of China now. But even they admit their studies are really dependent on the sources that were collected and preserved by European colonial powers or outside observers or something else. And so there's just a difference in terms of because of the source materials and what can be done and what can be studied. So it would be great, you know, to see more of that change. And again, I mean, we saw this repeated with COVID, at least in the United States, you know, there was a extraordinary microscopic level of examination of cases. I could look at cases in my town, in my county, the local hospital, my university. But when it came to the rest of the world, and certainly some parts of the world, you know, they were just estimates. They didn't know what was going on. Rarely did they penetrate the American news cycle to, you know, really pay attention to what was going on there. And so, you know, certainly living through COVID changed the way I thought about these historical pandemics, you know, to really think about what's visible, what's evident, but also what's missing. So as we kind of get toward the end of this discussion, one thing you said earlier on kind of piqued my interest, which was some of your writings more publicly during the early parts of COVID, for lack of a better term. I think we have to come up with a term. Maybe you and I, Lee, should figure out what that term is. And then we become super famous by being the people who coined some random term. But in any case, could you maybe take some time or think about, maybe reflect upon, you know, your work on the Russian flu in 1918 and kind of your public facing work and how that impacted, or you think it might've impacted what, you know, people thought about COVID as they were living through it by using some of these historical examples? Sure. Yeah. That's a hard question. <laughs> partly because there were many failures and missteps. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd always been interested in the kind of contemporary implications of what I was studying. And I had written a couple pieces circulating now, the blog from the National Library of Medicine that Jeff Resnick and Beth Mullen edit, often tied to seasonal flu season. <laughs> you know, so in the fall, there'd be something about flu preparations referencing 1918. Obviously, that changed. In fact, I'd written a piece that appeared in February of 2020, immediately before about whiskey in the 1918 flu and how in the United States, the flu coincided with the push for prohibition and the ban on alcohol and both sides, you know, the pro-alcohol talked about, you know, how alcohol was a cure for pandemic. And so sales went way up, but the prohibition side, you know, seized basically on the medical argument that there was no medicinal value in alcohol to argue for more restrictions. I've been working on that for months and it happened to appear in Nursing Clio, you know, in February of 2020. In fact, I had done a presentation here on campus as I was working on that, I think in early February of 2020. And people came up to me afterward and said, you know, what's going on with COVID? <laughs> you know, like, I just heard about this thing in China. Should we be worried? I'm like, yeah, I think we should be worried. You know, so I think that there was a sense in which 
kind of argument I'd been making, which was this history has contemporary relevance, was in some ways fulfilled by that pandemic. But in a way, I had at the time no idea, you know, of how serious it would be, how widespread. And in fact, a couple things I wrote, I wrote one about closing schools based on the experience in 1918. And I also wrote one about how the early cases of COVID were likely to generate, you know, a kind of flurry of attention and maybe detract from, you know, other things that we should be paying attention to. And we saw this. There were the cases in Seattle. There was the cruise ship in, I think, San Francisco that was kept in quarantine. You know, and the White House was giving us updates on the number of people who were sick and the number who were, you know, recovering. And there was a outbreak in Boston. You know, so there was this sense in which because of the way the outbreak narratives work, you know, much as we saw in 1918 when the first cases in New York get all of us attention or in 1889, I kind of regret that argument because the argument I should have been making was red flags everywhere. This is a crisis. We should be doing something. And I kind of underestimated how bad it was going to be. I think the piece that was probably the most widely circulated was in May of 2020 in, in Health Affairs, which is the blog from Health Press is a journal, but they also have a blog, which I think is now called Health Forward or something about masks. And I went back and looked at the, not so much the way masks were described at early 1918, but the way that the public health officials went back and looked at mask use, some pieces that appeared in the American Journal of Public Health and some other places where they said, you know, masks work in terms of their engineering, in terms of how they prevent, they didn't know it was a virus, but how they prevent the spread through coughing and sneezing, people in close proximity and so on. And the argument I made was, you know, that flu masks failed in 1918, but we need them. We need them for the same reason they made the arguments then, that they do prevent this transmission. And so I felt like that was, you know, at the time contributing to this public debate. I mean, again, the CDC wasn't recommending masks for a long time after COVID. People were really resistant to using them. They didn't believe they worked. And so I felt like that evidence from 1918 helped kind of further that argument, you know, about the technology of the mask and the way it worked. What I completely underestimated was the behavioral side. <laughs> you know, people don't like wearing masks. They will stop wearing masks as soon as they can. Not everyone, but many. And so I think in looking back, I probably should have emphasized the behavioral piece more in writing that essay. But I was a little worried that you know, some of the evidence from 1918 is that masks didn't work. <laughs> People didn't wear them. And there's no evidence from any city in 1918 that required masks that its outcomes were any better than cities that didn't require masks. And I didn't really want to make that argument in the spring of 2020. So I didn't. Now, maybe I would. I guess I am now in this podcast. For me, it's been a constant dialogue, you know, and as things have changed in COVID, what I write about has changed. So I did two studies with one grad student and one a recent graduate where we tried to measure how frequently people actually wore masks in 1918, because you can't tell from the photographs. Most of the photographs of people wearing masks were probably staged to show a person wearing a mask. <laughs> you know, so we looked at two situations where supposedly masks were required. One was a celebration in Stockton, California. The other were the influenza pneumonia wards in U.S. Army hospitals in France. And so again, these are pneumonia wards. They're designed for patients with infectious diseases. And in both cases, we found that a lot of people weren't wearing masks, including a lot of the patients in these hospital wards. And so I think that as the pandemic changed, my historical questions changed also. You know, I was interested in different things because I felt like asking those questions could then provide a different, but hopefully still useful response to the pandemic that I hoped would inform at least public debate, if not personal behavior. One other thing that changed, and this is US politics, you know, people ask me again and again in the fall of 2020, what lesson should we take from 1918? And the message I would say again and again was, you know, listen to public health experts, listen to what they're telling you and think about why they're telling you certain things. You know, again, whether this is social distancing, staying out of crowds, avoiding family gatherings, like we talked about earlier, or getting a vaccine. And I felt like given the presidential administration of the time, 
that was an important argument to make because the public health experts were saying something different than the government. If you think about the government as you know the White House. With the new administration in the spring of 2021, it actually became harder to make that argument because they started telling people to do things that <laughs> I don't think was good advice, or at least not well handled. Famously, making this announcement about, you know, masks were no longer required on airplanes. And they made it all of a sudden, and there were these videos of people pulling their masks off on airplanes. It's like, yeah, the air circulation in airplanes is actually pretty good. You probably are okay without a mask. But in the 5, 10, 20, 45 minutes you spend sitting at the gate, the air circulation is terrible, both ends of the flight. So you should have a mask on. In airports, in crowded spaces, you should have a mask. But they failed to kind of make that differentiation. You know, they said no more masks on airplanes. And so it was just like, all of a sudden, you could do whatever you wanted. And so I felt like that argument about listen to public health didn't really work as well anymore. So I started making other arguments. But that was something that as the context changed, I felt like the history lessons also needed to change. So maybe before we wrap up, I do want to get back to a point you raised at the beginning of this answer and maybe earlier on, right at the beginning of, of this episode. And it connects to the outbreak narratives or the narratives we tell about these pandemics. And specifically, I'm interested here about origins, which is what you mentioned a couple of times already. And it seems to me that we are, I mean, for lack of a better term, obsessed with the origins of COVID. I mean, was it a lap leak? Was it an animal spillover? I mean, who's responsible for this? Having thought about this and written about this, why do you think there is such a particular interest in the origins, even after, again, as we've been kind of talking about, COVID is kind of moving away from the public sphere, but the question of origins is still there, right? We still do get headlines about the new discoveries, about the origins and so on. Well, I think there is a legitimate scholarly scientific reason to ask that question, which is, you know, if you want to prevent the next pandemic, the sooner you can identify infected cases, the more quickly and the more effectively you can take preventive measures. And so, you know, if you think about either of the two theories, the animal spillover in a market or a lab leak, you could say, you know, here are the appropriate preventive measures to take to keep it from happening next time. We need better security in labs. Then we need better monitoring in any place where there is this potential for animal spillover, including, you know, potentially closing down those markets or at least doing a better job of testing or whatever. But having said that, the answer is, of course, we'll do both. You know, there should be better security at labs and there should be better monitoring in markets. And even if there's a definitive answer that, yes, it absolutely came from a lab or it absolutely came from the market, the answer isn't then, okay, we stop thinking about lab security, or we stop thinking about the potential for markets, because either of those could happen. So the answer is, again, really to be thinking about preventive detection containment, you know, measures rather than focusing on pinpointing the origins. They're political issues in two ways. You know, one is that obviously, the Communist Party in China, the Chinese government, the Chinese medical establishment is not disclosing information, you know, and if there were more information available, we can answer this question, you know, definitively, or at least probably. So there's a politics here on a global scale about, you know, how transparent governments are going to be, how willing they are to share, how effectively international organizations like the World Health Organization are going to be able to push in more authoritarian regimes for these kinds of answers and so on. In the United States, there's a different politics. You know, this is something that the Republicans have seized on with the idea of a lab leak in two ways, or three ways. One is to vindicate, you know, the former president and what he was saying. The second is to, yet again, find another way to attack China and the Chinese Communist Party and the political system, but also to discredit the medical establishment, you know, because again, Dr. Fauci, the National Institutes of Health, the Center for Disease Control, because they came out so strongly in favor of animal spillover and against a lab leak, you know, they're kind of associated with that point of origin. And so any evidence that suggests something else becomes a way for certain political groups to discredit the medical establishment, just like these completely false allegations of deaths from vaccines, or the, I think, reasonable questions about the effectiveness of mask mandates, or 
the implications of school closings are part of this kind of counter narrative, which is to say all of these public health measures that were taken early in the pandemic in crisis mode were actually harmful, dangerous, misguided, manipulative, whatever. And what this means is that in the next pandemic, I think in the United States, at least, it's going to be much harder to make decisions about closing schools or limiting hours in businesses or restricting travel or mandating masks or requiring vaccines because of this really very damaging pattern that we've seen over the last three years. You know, and so clearly the lab leak issue is directly feeding into, but also reinforcing that dynamic. If you look closely, you can find very good reports in mainstream media that are asking the right questions, not is this a cover-up or is this um, manipulation, but legitimately, how do you figure out where a disease starts? You know, how far back do you go? At what point do you say, yeah, this is where we implement the containment measures. You know, this is where we need to have potentially a lockdown or restrictions or other things. But that's really getting lost in some of these other political debates. So I think that's a good place to end our discussion. So I wanted to thank you so much, Tom, again, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. You know, Merle, I thought that was a great way to move into the Russian flu or to kind of cover another pandemic that was not actually on the list that you and I put together with like three years ago, the list of pandemics that we want to cover. But before we do discuss the Russian flu specifically, I thought about something at the beginning of this interview and, and just like us going through like the regular routine of what has been happening to us in our lives and kind of relating it to COVID. And definitely compared to the public sphere here in Israel, maybe also so in the United States, what I feel is going on in a sense is this process of forgetting, right? We're essentially forgetting much of what happened not that long ago. Again, this is from my perspective. And if we are doing that as a society, I think this podcast, we're kind of like an agent that's working relentlessly for pushing for remembering COVID and, and how important COVID was. I mean, even like your your final segment, your final like word that you tell people to keep masking indoors, like every single episode. And we talk about what's up with COVID near you, even though this is a conversation I no longer have with anyone else outside this podcast. Yeah. In some ways, what you're saying is some of the frameworks of this podcast are deliberately archaizing, right? In a sense, right? That we're deliberately recalling things in this podcast now that no longer actually make sense. And I should say on a straightforward note, maybe we should change the end note part of the episode. And, you know, we don't have to tell people what's happening around you vis-a-vis COVID. We could do it differently. I mean, that would make it more hip and modernly if you prefer. But in some ways, it's also, as we've always said, a way in which this podcast has evolved over time and has shown how the country has evolved over time or your country or my country or different countries through this process. And I think that this archaic aspect of it, for lack of a better term, has really only become kind of pronounced, I would say, in the last six months, maybe nine months, that it's become a bit strange. And there's still exceptions to this. If you remember when we had someone on from California Right. She said, oh, everyone's still masking inside. And it's like a ritual thing of, to be blunt about it, relatively well off liberals from the San Francisco area. Right. That's probably the only place left. I mean, I think that there still is a point in trying to remember COVID and preserve the COVID memory in a sense. Right. And maybe in this context, one person who we kind of had that conversation with a while ago on this podcast and on his podcast is Scott Knowles, right? Who early on, I remember during COVID thought that this is going to change everything. And I mean, back then at least, he was talking about how he's going to have like episodes coming out maybe like every week or every two weeks, but for years into the future. I mean, he was like definitely planning along those lines and it might be worth revisiting 
some of these questions with him and seeing where he's at. I mean, I, I think he moved to very unfriendly time zone for both of us, but I'm sure we can work something out. Yeah, what I'll say is not on a forgetting or remembering note or on a communal level, but I'll just say, you know, ultimately you do end up not thinking about your daily life, but remembering these things as, for lack of a better term, apocryphal stories, right? In a way that, you know, you forget some of the daily struggle. I mean, I forget in many ways the 10 weeks that I was alone with my children trying to get work done, right? And now it becomes almost this heroic struggle of, oh, I remember when I was taking care of my kids and also working and look at all this work I was getting done, right? And, you know, we were talking with Tom about this. I was also drinking a lot more alcohol, right? He mentioned the 1918 influence and not because I thought I was going to resolve this, but because I needed more alcohol. This was your wine time, bro. I mean, this was like you and your neighbor is like getting into wines and having like a small pod in which you just got together and drank wine. So that was the next year. We started drinking wine before that. But again, this is no different, right? If you recall, I have one story when it comes to the first article you and I wrote together, which was our past and present article. And I have effectively forgotten most of the interactions of writing that article, right? I could pull up the reviewer reports or whatever, but I've forgotten most of the things about it. What do I remember? What's my apocryphal story, right? It's this heroic story, ultimately, which is, oh, I wrote that article from 9 p.m. to 1 in the morning when that was my shift to watch my then very newborn children, right, who would wake up because they woke up every three or four hours. And I did all this research in the four-hour time slot in which they were asleep. And that's how I wrote the article. And then I would feed them at 1 a.m. and go to bed and sleep from like 2 in the morning to like, you know, 7. And that's the story I remember from that article. I mean, I'm sure all these stories will be stories that we tell our children. And they're probably the only ones who would actually want to hear these stories, to be honest. Yeah, the other thing I thought was actually kind of interesting, which is obviously, as you know, we like to reflect upon our own pandemically. And there's a couple of things, but I'll touch upon one, which is Tom mentioned how much communications was key to the spread of the Russian flu and how people knew about it and where they knew about it and how these things worked, which strikes me as something people have often said when it came to the Justinianic plague or even say the Black Death, right? That it spreads along corridors of empire. Well, what they actually probably also should think about is not only does it spread literally that way, but it also is known about and communicated about much more in that way. So, you know, we always talk about why isn't there much written about, quote unquote, the Justinianic plague in Western Europe? Well, People just aren't communicating on as large of a scale as they are in the Eastern Roman Empire. Sure, that's a fair point. And if you're mentioning the Justinianic plague, there actually are the equivalent of news reports coming into the capital that the periphery is being struck by this epidemic and people at the capital kind of follow the course of the epidemic towards them. So there is some communication going on there, and it's definitely easier to do within the framework of an empire. Another point that I had here, and that actually also connects to, I mean, the Justinianic plague, but more broadly, earlier pandemics in general, is that we know so little about the early pandemics on one hand, but we do want to tell these very big stories about them. Whereas, as Tom mentioned here, we have much more knowledge of everything surrounding the modern pandemics. I mean, sure, maybe it's not as great as we have for COVID today, right? So maybe for the Russian flu, we have, I don't know, some fraction of what we have for COVID, but it's still like enormously more than what we have for the Justinianic plague and the other early pandemics. And yet for the bigger pandemics with the more evidence, we still prefer to tell smaller stories. There is no real attempt, as Tom mentioned, to try to tell a global story, or has been no real attempt to tell a global story about the Russian flu. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to the reasons why we tell bigger stories in the past, right? Things take place over longer periods of time, and we have less evidence. So we try to connect the dots in much more causal ways than anyone working on the 20th century, or the long 20th century, if you want to include the Russian influenza in this would ever try to do, right? Just as no one would ever try to connect 
maybe they have and I haven't seen it, the 1918 influenza pandemic to the reason for the outbreak of World War II, or as we've once joked about, probably more realistically, you know, the outbreak of the war in, say, Russia and Ukraine today, right? That's the timescale they're working on, but people are perfectly happy to do that with the Justinianic plague and the, you know, Islamic conquest, right? And so I think that's certainly part of the reason. And if you want to be really cynical, and I know you're a cynical guy, Lee, you would also say that, you know, us in the past need to prove ourselves as important. So we tell bigger stories so people take us more seriously. Yes. And you kind of undermine the argument in a sense by pointing out the different scales that we're talking about, right? So if we're talking about like a century long pandemic, I mean, that's not exactly what's going on here. And if that is the case, how much can we actually learn from that century long pandemic that actually is relevant about the present? But that's maybe a topic for another conversation. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Lee. I believe I'm going to see you hopefully in a couple of weeks. So what's flying internationally like post-COVID, quote unquote? Crowded, busy, packed. Also much more expensive. But I mean, it's back to normal. I mean, it's the same as it used to be earlier on. Do you mask on an airplane? I have not. I've tried. I tried. Last time I flew, I tried. And most people did not. And eventually I stopped as well. I was weak, Merle. I was weak. I'll say this. Flying is one of the last places that I still mask quite a bit, both because I know getting on the airplane, the airflow is very bad, just like getting off the airplane, the airflow is very bad. And also, as I've long told you, and it's happened the last time you flew internationally, if I recall, I always used to get sick when I was flying. So at least now that's my mitigation against it. You know, and the airflow is pretty good once you're on the plane. So if you want to take it off to eat quickly or whatever, it's not the end of the world. Do you still do your three mask thing? That was two. And no, I don't do that <laughs> anymore. That was at the height of, you know, COVID to an extent. Okay, so on that point, we will wrap up this episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding the Infectious Historians and also our great team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Verido Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, keep masking indoors when it's appropriate, like on airplanes, and let us know your thoughts on flying.